This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. The Sam and Rose Stein Institute for Research on Aging is committed to advancing lifelong health and well-being through research, professional training, patient care, and community service. As a nonprofit organization at the University of California San Diego School of Medicine, our research and educational outreach activities are made possible by the generosity of private donors. It is our vision that successful aging will be an achievable goal for everyone. To learn more, please visit our website at aging.ucsd.edu. The title of today's discussion is admittedly an extremely broad one. Fostering mental well-being as we age could be related to almost every uh, lecture that's been in this public lecture series in one way or another. But rather than trying to talk about everything under the sun, I'm hoping at least towards the end of the talk or the middle to hone in on some specific psychosocial factors that we see as potentially changeable to improve mental well-being. My my hope is to give you some take-home points of of actionable things that we can do to to help foster well-being. First, I would like to start with with some acknowledgments. I have to express my huge debt to the Stein Institute during during a major portion of, of my career. Um, I've been lucky and honored to be associated with the program for uh, about 15 years. And these um, listed on the slide are categories of people to whom I'm deeply indebted and and grateful. Uh, The the list is much, much too long to to name everybody, but I do have to thank our our prior director, Dr. Juste, and our current director, interim director is is Dr. Allison Moore. Um, our uh, interim scientific director, Anthony Molina, and of course, uh, Danielle Glorioso is executive director for as long as I can remember, being, being the person who takes ideas, contributes those ideas, but also makes them happen, as, as you'll see in, in some of the research I'm going to show today, really uh, is, is led by, by Danielle, some of the, the intervention studies I'll show you. So I want to thank all of the people in all of these groups as, as we go along. Yeah. I always like to start when I've got a topic like well-being, which is such a broad one, of thinking about the word itself. And so my first go-to thing tends to be to go to the uh, Oxford English Dictionary and find out the first usage of the word. With well-being, um, the the first usage seems to me to be a little bit... Uh, or a lot bit sexist, but it goes back about 500 years to 1561. It's this translation of a passage originally written in Italian, but the translation was in 1561 by Thomas Hobie. Um, The specific paragraph, again, obviously has some sexism in it, but the last couple uh, clauses here are, are the key to me, where the author is distinguishing between existence as just being and some positive quality of existing, uh, where we're getting the term well-being for the very first time. Then in terms of defining it, 
there again, well-being can be used in a lot of different ways, but the first definition that appears in the Oxford English Dictionary, and this is also the first in Merriam-Webster's, is, is this one that I think is most relevant to what we're talking to, to about today, which is the state of being healthy, happy, or prosperous, physical, psychological, or moral welfare. And I, I also uh, found an interesting discussion of the definition on the Center for Disease Control and Prevention website. And they had noted that there is no consensus definition in the literature, um, but there seems to be general agreement that at minimum, well-being includes the presence of positive emotions and moods, the absence of negative emotions like depression and anxiety, satisfaction with life, fulfillment, and positive functioning. The bolding is my own because those are aspects of, of well-being that I wanted to emphasize today. But one of the things we can talk about is to the extent that well-being can be achieved in even the presence of negative emotions. Another approach to defining well-being comes from asking people. And I thought this uh, recent study that was published, um, I can't remember when it's published, but it was published recently, oh, 2020. This study that was recently published in 2020 from a European group, specifically the European Welfare Models and Mental Wellbeing in Final Years of Life Project. And they did 23 focus groups with 117 people ages 80 years and above. And they took their discussions of, of what well-being meant and they coded them and categorized them into, into three dimensions. One is functional, feeling healthy, maintaining independent. Another is personal aspects, feelings of life engagement, having close relationships, insightful experiences with friends, engagement in fruitful or inspiring activities, positive outlook. And then the third being environmental, things like natural surroundings and living conditions. So largely what will be uh, focused on today is that middle one, but these are, these are three areas that people themselves defined as important who are 80 and above. Then we can talk a little bit about some types of well-being, and we could really spend our whole hour just speaking about what are the various dimensions of well-being. But here are some important ones for our talk. One is this idea of mental, emotional, or psychological well-being, which for today's purposes, I'll put all under one rubric, versus physical well-being. And then in mental well-being, or some call it subjective well-being, we can also divide that up into hedonic well-being. These are feeling components, things like feeling pleasure, positive emotions. The most uh, common one that comes to mind is just the sense of happiness. And then there's this idea of eudaimonic well-being, and these are thinking components or more of a deeper sense of fulfillment, feeling uh, a sense of meaning, self-actualization, and purpose. And these can have different le levels of importance, uh, one as we age, but also in terms of the degree to which we can find one or another, while there may also be some simultaneous types of suffering being experienced. Now, we're not primarily talking about physical well-being, but it certainly can impact uh, mental well-being. The Center for Disease Control notes that physical well-being, like feeling very healthy and full of energy, is critical to overall well-being. 
I like this uh, comment from the Australian National University that physical well-being is the ability to maintain a healthy quality of life that allows us to get the most out of our daily activities without undue fatigue or, or distress. Here, we talk about physical well-being, though it also made me think about this quote in a, in a, a popular book from Laura Carstensen. Laura Carstensen is one of the leaders in positive mental health and aging. She's up at Stanford University. And she published this book uh, now, I guess, about 12 years ago. Um, and this quote in there stood out in my mind as having truth that when we hear about successful aging, which is a related concept and very much one Stein Institute is, is interested in, it's almost always wrapped in this glossier story about how to stay young and how to avoid old age. So sometimes when we're hearing successful aging, we're thinking of the person who really uh, has avoided some of the trappings of, of maybe the physical or cognitive decline. So that begs the question, can we have um, positive mental well-being despite or even sometimes in, in the context or because of some of the challenges that come with aging? Here in, in addressing this, I want to talk a little bit about the UCSD Successful Aging Evaluation or SAGE study, which I think you will have heard if you've attended some of our prior lectures, you'll heard about before, but it's a, it's a core part of the Stein Institute. It's a cohort of approximately 1800 people who are demographically representative residents of San Diego County. They were identified through random digit dialing, which is very important. So this isn't a convenience sample. These are people that, that we identified in the community. So hopefully a more representative sample. At the time of enrollment, they were ages 21 to 100. And at the time of enrollment, there was no known dementia. It is limited in that they're English-speaking, non-institutionalized folks and not in a hospice. And it involved telephone screening plus a mail-in or online survey. The SAGE survey was the brainchild of our former director, Dr. Jesty and began in early 2010, um, but it, the cohort remains active and people are being surveyed at regular intervals, including, including right now. And our interim scientific director, Anthony Molina, has in particular been active in keeping it alive. And, and many of our trainees here are also actively engaged in, in using the SAGE data. So I want to show you... Um, one of our seminal findings from the SAGE survey, and this is just baseline cross-sectional survey. This was a study led by uh, my colleague, Michael Thomas, who's now at University of Colorado, but he was here at University of San California, San Diego at the time. And the title, The Paradoxical Trend for Improvement in Mental Health and Aging, this pretty much gives away the, the finding that I want to show you. In fact, if there were one slide from the whole discussion today that I wanted you to remember, it would be this slide. What we've got are three lines here. The red line is mental health. That includes some mental health things like depression, anxiety, or the absence of them, but also positive um, uh, constructs like happiness, satisfaction with life, vitality. And what we see is this steady increase from the age 20 up to age 100, that mental health is actually getting better. You have these other composites, the green being physical health and the blue being cognitive functioning. 
we're seeing a, a gradual decline that particularly starts to accelerate around age 70 for the, for the cognitive function. And the paradox is this part that we're seeing over here in the right-hand side, that despite the expected declines in cognitive functioning that can come with age and physical health that can come with age, mental health continues to get um, better. Stated in another way, mental well-being continues to improve into late life. This has been seen in a number of studies, and not just ours, and it's been called the paradox of aging. Um, I actually looked for a number of cartoons that I wanted to include in the in the uh, talk today, just to make it a little bit um, brighter and not just a bunch of, of tables and so forth. But it's very hard to find cartoons about aging that are not um, negative in some way. And I think that speaks a little bit to the ongoing ageism that we face in society. But I like this one. Getting older has many advantages. I'm still as imperfect as ever, but I no longer care. And I don't see that uh, statement about I no longer care as being one of disengagement, but one of reprioritizing what's really important in life. Here's another way that we've uh, seen this paradox of aging. And depending on the specific measure that is used, a specific construct that you're measuring, it can be a linear increase or it can be what's often talked about as this U-shaped curve. Here's data from the Brookings Institute where they measured life satisfaction across different age cohorts. And the lowest life satisfaction seems to be around age 50. And then there starts to be a, this increase around age 60 and continues on. This has been a fairly common finding. Again, sometimes it, it depends on, on the specific measure as to whether it's an inverted U or a linear increase. But the key here is that there is this steady increase. And I have to say, as someone in my early 60s, this seems like good news. And I've got a lot of positive things to look forward to, even if some of the aches and pains are already noticeable. Um, this was a follow-up from that earlier SAGE study that, that I showed. And I don't want to go so much into the details of this due, due to time. But here are they, my colleagues. We are looking at um, middle-aged people, ages 40 to 59, what were called young, young old of 60 to 79, and then older old of 80, 80 plus. And the interest was to see if um, the predictors of um, uh, of mental well-being change with different age groups. And one interesting finding that I wanted to uh, highlight for today was that compassion toward others was even more strongly associated with well-being in the 80-plus group than, than in the earlier age groups. And this is uh, of interest because when we get to some of the interventions, a number of studies are looking at compassion interventions, both compassion uh, learning compassion for others, a pro-social behavior, but also compassion towards self. And so this is evidence that it may become even more important as we get into the later stages of, of later life. Okay, um, one thing I haven't mentioned so far is um, the idea that uh, well-being can be present even in the context of serious challenges. This was a study not specific to aging, but is a study that I was interested in 
in terms of whether happiness was was present in people with schizophrenia. So we had looked at uh, a number of people across the age range of 21 to 70 with with schizophrenia and compared them to a comparison group of people similar in age. And what we found was with our happiness measure that yes, on average, people with schizophrenia reported lower happiness than the healthy comparison group, but still almost 40% of people in the schizophrenia group reported happiness in what was called the high range. And significant associations with level of happiness were lower perceived stress, higher resilience, higher optimism, higher sense of personal mastery. And this is important because, again, these are things that we've got some evidence that we can make some improvements on. So even within the context of a a major challenge of having a a serious mental illness like schizophrenia, happiness, positive mental well-being are possible. Another look at um, challenges is the recent COVID experience. And this was a uh, study that was recently reported by Laura Carstensen and colleagues that they conducted uh, a survey right in April 2020. So if you think about April 2020, this was right as um, the lockdowns for um, social distancing were were getting um, key and and, and in, in place. And what she's finding here, she and her colleagues, is that older adults down here, we have um, people 20 to about 60 year, years old. And what we're finding is that negative emotions or the frequency of negative emotions up on top and intensity of negative emotions is less frequent or less intense with aging and positive emotions, the opposite pattern. This is consistent with, with a lot of, of prior research that's been going on for past 20, even 30 years now. But it was important to see in the context of, of the COVID-19 lockdown, because it meant it wasn't simply, this aging paradox is not simply avoiding negative experience, because the negative experience of the COVID lockdown was unavoidable. So that, that was critical. And it fits into one of the key uh, prevailing theories of what might be going on with this paradox of aging. And this is uh, their social emotional selectivity theory. In brief, the idea behind this theory is that as we age, our time horizon changes. Early in life, it seems like time is, is forever. We've got a lot of time behind in front of us. And death is certainly something that's that's hopefully way, way off in, in the distance. But as we enter our 60s, 70s, more and more into 80s and 90s, there becomes more of a feeling of finite time left. And what has been observed now for decades is that on average, older adults tend to prune their social networks. By that, what I mean is the number of social contacts or or a friend, a friendship network, if we might, might call it that, decreases, but the quality of those relationships is, is deeper. So the meaningful relationships are retained, even though the networks are smaller. Where with, with younger adults with more time or perceived time in front of them, they tend to invest their attention and social capital capital in future possibilities. So there's there's more of a, a focus on 
finding new new friends. And uh, this is critical as we come to things like um, addressing loneliness or improving um, well-being. And one of the things will be social connectedness, but improving social connectedness may not be going out and making a whole lot of new friends. It may be in terms of actively cultivating important relationships that are that are already present. One other set of researchers that I wanted to mention as we're talking about uh, mental well-being uh, uh, research is Ed Diner and colleagues at the University of Utah. I mean, they've done a number of key studies and, and contributions in this area, and they had a, a terrific overview, uh, review of the literature back in 2018. And there's just a couple of points from this overview or review of the literature that I wanted to highlight here. One is the heritability literature. It does appear that there is a genetic component to this subjective well-being or, or happiness of about 30 to 40 percent. And that could initially be seen as, as somewhat dismaying because that's that's a non-trivial amount. But the glass being not, not half empty, I mean, not, uh, but, but half full, that means a good 60 to 70 percent of, of the variance or variability in subjective well-being is attributed to other factors. Some of these may still be relatively intractable or not immediately uh, changeable, depending on one's resources, um, things like, like food and shelter um, or income. What we find with income is that the, re the relationship is com complex. There is a positive association between income and subjective well-being up to a point where basic needs become um, met. And so the income uh, effect um, satiated, if you will, or the curve levels off. And at the time of this review, that was around $75,000 US. That would certainly depend on cost of living. And it, it may depend on exactly the type of well-being that one's talking about. Um, there are personal circumstances that also affect, affect well-being positively or negatively. Marriage, at least initially, appears to positively affect well-being. Sometimes that will uh, taper off. Things like wood, widowhood may have a, a longer effect, a negative effect on well-being. So what we're hoping for is to find, yes, here's the things that affect well-being, but are there some that, that we can also um, do something about more readily? That's where some of the positive psychological factors give, give me some hope. Uh, the broad literature on, on positive psychological factors and well-being, mental well-being, point to um, a number of the constructs that I've listed here. One is resilience, another is gratitude, there's things like hope and optimism, compassion towards oneself, and social connectedness. So then that leads to the question about improving mental well-being. So this is where I want to talk about a few of the studies that have been done here and, and some in, in other contexts. The first one that I wanted to show you here was led by co-authors, Emily Treischler and Danielle Glorioso, who kindly introduced me today. Number of our other colleagues here at, at UCSD, but also some of their um, colleagues at the Mather Institute in, in Illinois. 
And what they did was they developed a one-month intervention to try to improve resilience. And the intervention was, was relatively simple. It, it focused on things like savoring and gratitude and engaging in values-based activities because these were things that had been shown in prior, prior studies to affect well-being. And it was, um, there, there were three meetings of this intervention. Um, forgetting off the top of my head what the three, the three dates of it were, but they were three 90-minute meetings over the course of a month. What you'll see are months. So during this first month from zero to one, that was a control period. Nothing was done during that period. Then from one month to two months, that's where the intervention occurred. And then from two to five months, that was a follow-up. And I've shown you the graphs from, from their paper here for change in resilience and change in perceived stress. So the key is, as you look from one month to two months, you're seeing an improvement in resilience. There was actually a further increase in resilience that occurred over the um, three-month follow-up such that this improvement in resilience from the beginning of intervention to the five-month uh, follow-up was statistically significant. Now, there's something called effect size that we talked about. The effect size was not gargantuan on this improvement, but it was statistically significant. And that's despite the fact that the baseline level of resilience in this group and was relatively high, and the level of perceived stress was not substantially high either. So this, this was uh, a case where there were potential for ceiling effects and still there was this improvement in resilience. The opposite, the opposite in terms of being still being improvement was a lower level of perceived stress that to some degree was also maintained over the uh, three month follow-up. So that was some initial evidence that with a relatively short intervention, resilience and can be improved, perceived stress can be decreased. And these are both things that we know to be strongly related to mental well-being. Well, that study was done um, prior to COVID. Then COVID hits and some of these in-person interventions became more difficult, not just for our research, but in the world at large. One of my other hats had been some clinical work and um, what we'd seen with the advent of COVID was telehealth became you know, the, the go-to thing for, for a lot of clinicians. So as a second step in the development of this intervention, Danielle and, and this case with the, her co-first author, Dr. Chesty, our former um, our, our former director, had developed a remote version of this intervention. And so again, this, this was kind of the second round of this, this intervention where it was retooled as a six-week remote intervention. And the components of it could be divided up into, into three ideas. One was cognitive. This was education about uh, concepts like empathy, compassion, self-compassion, loneliness, self-challenging. Also, some things challenging traditional ideas about or negative ideas about aging. Second were uh, effective things like mindfulness exercises, self-compassion exercises, so very experiential. And the third were behavioral things, even more experiential, like having people do gratitude journals, values-based activities, and so forth. 
And what we found here was small to medium effect size, but significant reductions in perceived stress, loneliness, increases in, in resilience and happiness. I do want to make a correction. I said statistic, I said significant. Actually, the, the sample size in this study was relatively low. So our emphasis here was on effect sizes. But these are in the range of what we would generally call small to medium effect sizes. You can think of these Ds as, as a standard deviation. So an improvement of about a, a third of a standard deviation in perceived stress, an increase of almost half a standard deviation in happiness and so forth. Let me define a few terms here. Um, one is empathy. Empathy is that ability to understand and share the feelings of another person. There's two components. One is the cognitive component, which is that understanding. And sharing is this internal experience of sharing the feeling that another person may, may be experiencing. Compassion is this desire to reduce the suffering of other people. And then self-compassion, an extremely important construct, is ability to extend that same compassion to oneself. What we find when we talk to people, or even if you do self-reflection, you may find that uh, people are more critical to themselves than they would be to, to a, a good friend. So in self-compassion training, one of the things we do is, is ask people to reflect on when there's been this challenge that a person is experiencing or a perceived failure. What would you tell a good friend? What would you authentically tell your good friend about that? And then to try to be as kind to yourself as, as you might be to, to that friend or, or even to a stranger. Um, so in another study, this was not the intervention that uh, Danielle and, and Emily and, and uh, Dilip had uh, developed, but another one that had been um, developed by some folks at Emory University, Nagy and colleagues, we applied this to a group of older adults in, in this study. This was also done pre-COVID, and this was some people who were aged 66 to 73 years old, and it was a 10-week program. This was largely a feasibility program. We wanted to, we were adapting this for older adults, and we wanted to see if uh, we could get people to attend the things and complete the the homework assignments and so forth. I'm not really showing you the feasibility data. What I wanted to show you is this one figure where we're seeing some uh, evidence of some improvement in these, um, the, the yellow and the pink and the green, these are positive effective states that are being asked people at each week. And some evidence of decline in the negative ones like sadness or anger or feeling stressed. Again, one limitation of this study and a number of studies in, in, this, in this type of work is people were doing pretty well at baseline. It's actually pretty impressive that there's improvement when the people who, who tend to volunteer tend to be doing pretty good. Uh, one other cartoon that I found that, that, that I did like was, was this one, one size fits all. Obviously, one size does not fit all. And what I wanted to bring that into is just to give an example of one type of uh, activity that would be an intervention like this that, that you can actually apply um, at home. And that's the importance of value-driven behavior. Now, the things that are important to me might not be the ones that are important to Danielle or important to any, any individual person and so forth. We're all, we're all different. But 
we do all have values, things that matter personally to us most as, as a person. One of the things is in, in, in taking a step like this concretely is figuring out, well, what are my important values and are the things that I'm doing right now most reflective of those or do I may need to make some changes? And there's some steps that, that one can take to try to clarify those. But uh, what I also wanted to uh, distinguish is values versus goals. So values are these broad principles. Think of, of things like uh, relationships, honesty, integrity, independence, good spirituality. I, I've listed a, a couple of examples on this slide, but there's literally hundreds of different ones. The important one is figuring out the ones that are important for you. Then there's goals. And these are the specific ways that you can express or manifest those, those values. This is something you can check off as, okay, I did that. And then in, in pursuing our goals, there are actions, concrete, countable behaviors. And let me give you a simple example of this type of worksheet you might see in one of these interventions, but it's also something that you can just do without the, the formality of a full intervention. So after identifying one, one's values, and, and one way to do that um, you know, very briefly is to think about the times that you felt most proud, most happy, most fulfilled, and try to understand what values were underlying those. There's also some things, just a simple search on the Google internet. There's some pretty standard um, exercises that you can do to help identify your values. But let's say health. Health tends to be one that's common for everybody. And my value is I want to be healthier. And a goal in that, more specific and tangible, is I want to exercise more often. But that's still pretty hard to keep me accountable for or keeping myself accountable for. So an action to that would be to go walking for 30 minutes, five days this week. And then um, what, what we can do is, is set up a, a page like this. These are the goals I want to do. I'm going to go walking, and then I can have the results of, well, did, how many days did I actually do it? Now, we don't want to turn this into another reason to beat up on oneself. So I've also got this other comment in here of barriers. If I didn't, if I didn't make the five days that week, what were some barriers I ran into? So one of them might be the time or making the time. And the solution that came to my mind was, Okay, if I'm really going to make myself make the time, when I go to work, I'm going to park the car 30 minutes away. I'm going to make myself walk 30 minutes to work. So that one might, again, go back to the one size fits all. That may not fit everybody, but that's a kind of uh, specific example of what I'm talking about, of action, uh, value-driven action behavior. And we do find that this improves uh, things like uh, satisfaction and, and happiness uh, if maintained. Another thing uh, that I am very interested in is kind of the converse of well-being, which is this epidemic of loneliness. Now, in the interest of time, I'm not going to go into, into great detail of, of loneliness. I want to leave time for, for uh, questions and answers. But what we do find is that the association of age and loneliness is complex it's kind of the um, the uh, related to that inverse U, where there does seem to be something that's going on around uh, age fifty. Sometimes we see it a little later, sometimes a little earlier. Um, this one is 
some data from uh, from Ellen Lee uh, again in the in the Sage data where we're finding it's harder to see here a little bump. A uh, key thing in this graph is notice that there is very these are individual observations. There's variability all over here, and so again, that's that's age in itself is not determinate. My question is how if if I'm at if I'm let me put myself if I'm at this age and I want to decrease my loneliness, I want to find out what are the factors that may put me down here in terms of low loneliness versus up here in terms of high loneliness. I want to summarize with some take home points. Mental well-being can be affected by physical health and um, physical well-being and health. And it, but it can also be high. I mean, that you can have good mental well-being even in the presence of age-related declines in physical function and health. So I don't want to discount that these things are challenges and, and can be terrible. But that mental well-being, it's a viable goal to at least make it higher than it might otherwise be. Some of the variants appear to be genetic, and some may be related to relatively intractable internal external factors. But it's also affected by positive psychological factors like resilience, optimism, compassion for self and others, and social connectedness that we do have some reason to be hopeful we we can uh, modify. So. Even if uh, mental well-being is not perfect, attention to things like personal values, goals, and actions can help make it make it better. Is my well-being better tomorrow than it was today? Can I can I do that? That's that's a more constructive way to try to think about it. Um, and we didn't talk about social connectedness very much, but in terms of the social emotional selectivity theory, one thing that comes out of Carstensen's work is that it may be quality not quantity that appears most important. Okay, these were just some examples that I had of um, very high functioning physical well-being folks who, uh, who one last week, one is a 93-year-old fellow who summited Half Dome, another is a 76-year-old lady who finished the Appalachian Trail. I was very inspired by them. But I, I suspect their physical well-being is in part a reflection of their mental well-being. And they were just, just inspiring, inspiring cases for me. Okay, I want to stop my sharing there so that we have time for questions and answers. Right on time, Dr. Palmer. Terrific. Great. Thank you so much for such a great talk. I want to just remind everybody... Uh, if you have questions for Dr. Palmer, please put them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, and we're going to go ahead and get started. So, Barton, let's start with the first question that came in that you noted during the talk, um, yes. and I might be able to speak to this a little bit too, but the question is, um, on the group intervention in senior communities, what was the intervention and what was done in the 90 minutes? Yes, I would. I would. I, I have the benefit of having uh, my my friend and colleague Danielle Colaroso here, not just introducing and in her role as executive director of of the Stein Institute, but also in her role as as a researcher and an active clinician. She's a clinical social worker who who wrote this manual, and so I'm not I'm not going to I'm going to ask Danielle to speak specifically. What did you do there? And I'd like to add to that of what did what lessons did you learn as you adapted this um, intervention further? 
Yeah, this has been a great labor of love and something that started many, many years ago when we started looking at the research that showed that um, people that were resilient um, lived longer, happier, better lives and, you know, had better physical outcomes, better immune systems and mental health and all this stuff. So we thought, I wonder if there's something we can create here that would help promote resilience. So in these programs that, as you mentioned, have adapted, been adapted over the years, we focused on things that uh, we know contribute to resilience. So engaging in value-driven activities, um, loving kindness meditation, deep breathing exercises, um, exercises to promote empathy, compassion, self-compassion, um, these types of things that are done in both in, we've done it in individual one-on-one settings and also in group settings. And the group setting, um, it's 90 minutes and the one-on-one it's 50 minutes. And the group being 90 minutes is in part because really we want to facilitate great discussion um, the social connectedness, right? Like the being vulnerable, the opening up, the sharing of ideas um, is a really important component in, in the group-based intervention, um, which I'm actually running a group right now um, at one of the senior living communities in uh, La Jolla. Um, okay, I wanna ask a few other questions here. Where does mindfulness fit into promoting well-being? Oh, thank you for that question. I I, I didn't really um, get a, a chance to speak to um, mindfulness, but mindfulness tends to be an important part of these these interventions. I spoke both both the the one uh, that that Danielle has developed, um, the one from the Emory folks, and there there's a large and growing literature on on what are called contemplative interventions. Um, the these these come out of in part out of out of eastern traditions like buddhism but mindfulness as you may realize or, or seen is has become a a big topic uh, mindfulness is very important in in just the briefest of terms mindfulness is this idea of, of stopping and being present in in the moment so it's very important it's very important to well-being um, when you think about the opposite of well-being, like depression or or anxiety, those tend to not be in the moment. Even something like anxiety, anxiety tends to be future focused. I'm walking through the forest. I'm afraid I'm getting I'm going to get eaten by a bear. Well, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking about this bear that's not present. Even the bear is present. I'm afraid this bear is about to attack me. I'm not suggesting doing a mindful meditation while a bear is chasing you, but the idea is that, you know, at, at a less extreme, um, being present in the moment, savoring the moment, even sometimes with some, some aversive experiences. Uh, for, for example, I've been having some pain in my right toe and you can, you can be lost in that pain. Mindfulness stops you, uh, mindfulness exercises teach you to stop and think about and experience that in a moment. Detach yourself. Well, what are the physical sensations of, of that pain? I put the label on pain, but is it, is it a heat? Is it warmth? Is it a sharpness? And so forth. Um, so I didn't go too deeply into mindfulness because it was hard within the time constraints, but I definitely encourage people to, to Google um, uh, mindfulness. There's some great free guided mindfulness uh, exercises that are that I've seen um, 
out available on the web and, and give those a try. I, I've applied them. I find them to be helpful. Sometimes it's hard to remind oneself, but there's uh, in walking mindfulness meditations that you can do yeah. pretty much anywhere. That's great. Okay. We have a couple other questions. Uh, um, oh. How does one's faith impact mental well-being versus no faith at all? So spirituality, we've looked at a bit um, at the Stein Institute, but I don't, I'm not sure what the data is. Yes, that's a, that is a terrific question. Spirituality is, is definitely um, a, a component of, of well-being uh, in terms of very specific religious practices. It's a com- it's a complex uh, it's a complex answer. Sometimes that uh, belonging to a community can be very important. A sense of social connectedness, definitely the the sense of um, belonging to something that's higher that that's beyond oneself can be can be very important. Um, there there can be situations where where uh, uh, the the rigors of a religion or the specific of, of a particular community um, can be, become challenging. So it's a complicated it's a complicated picture, but uh, there does seem to be, in general, at least with spirituality, a positive association with with well being and tying one oneself to or, or sensing oneself as belonging to to something larger than than oneself and that if for for many that that maybe experiences a sense of spirituality. Okay, great. And here's a question that I would imagine that many people can relate to. Um, as longtime friends begin to pass away, then what? And and I'm sure that this question is maybe related to like loneliness or resilience and the impact that losing people we love dearly as we age has on us. This is this is a really um, important question. I'm, I'm I'm glad you brought it up. And again, I, I um, in the interest of time, I, I actually didn't go into this as much as I I would have uh, liked to. I when I say that mental well being can be uh, promoted in the even in in the presence of pain, I don't for a minute want to diminish the experience of grief and losing people that uh, that that we love. Um, in the um, in in the figures I showed you, where there's this gradual improvement in well-being, some of our data from the Stein Institute, I, I didn't show you because the figures are very complex; they're not good for a talk. But there may be a slight decline that starts in what's called the oldest old people, people 80 and, and above. And one of the one of the theories of why this may be, it's, it's not known. One of the theories is that that may be when things like 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 widowhood or, or you know, again in young younger life, losing people very close to us is, you know, they say is not something you get over. It's it's something you you live live beside. Um, so that does affect uh, mental well-being. I would go back without diminishing uh, grief. I would go back to this um, idea that um, there's still a range of of being able to experience moments of happiness or moments of 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 a sense of meaning, even, even in in that context. But I, again, I don't want to for a minute that that is one of the challenges that 
living long uh, will will unfortunately um, bring to life sometimes. Losing someone we love dearly is one of the most difficult things we can go through. It's certainly a really stressful life event. Yeah. Um, okay, another question for you, Dr. Palmer. How might cognitive changes with aging affect some of the interventions for resilience, compassion, and well-being? Yes, okay. So so those are, um, th there, there may be uh, a need to, to have some adjustment uh, with some of the some of the cognitive changes in, in aging. One of, one of the other hats I've worn in my career is studying cognitive changes with, with aging. And um, outside the context of something like, like an Alzheimer's or, or related dementia, we still, just as part of normal aging, we experience a decrease in processing speed. There's a, a decrease in the speed with which you, you can think. Um, Things like like uh, focused attention can become a little more difficult. Certain aspects of of memory become more difficult. Like like free recall can become a little more different difficult. Um, not necessarily totally, you know, an amnesia where you've forgotten things, but just the, the information is there and you're having difficulty pulling it out. So when we're designing interventions and adapting if they've been developed for for younger adults and and adapting them for for older adults with with cognitive changes, um, there are things that that may need to be taken in consideration to reduce the load on on spontaneous free recall memory. So memory aids, things that you notice in a talk in a talk like this or virtually any talk. We use PowerPoint and, and I had bullet points. Well, the purpose of those bullet points is in, in any talk, not just for me, is that they help focus attention. And if your mind wanders off and research shows our minds wander off frequently, constantly, actually, uh, the bullet points help bring us back to what, what was being discussed. And I think all too often in, in clinical encounters, we don't take advantage of these same things. So having interventions with, with some bullet points, with reminders, visual aids can, can be helpful. Changing some of the, um, some of the things in terms of, uh, of, of cognitive fatigue can be helpful. Uh, Danielle, in your interventions, did, did you find you had um, taken any um, things or been inspired by things for, that had been used with younger adults that, that you then adapted to older? folks? Well, so what we did was we tried to use a lot of repetition, like you said. I mean, I, we, we see that with children. You want to repeat a lot. We, I mean, in our intervention, we want to make sure that like the concepts are being repeated and practiced in group. And then after that, we sort of repeatedly try these things. Whenever you're tr trying to create new habits, you really need to find different ways to practice them and try them out. So we do them in group together, and then we do them outside of group, and then come back and talk about how it went, and then try it again in other ways. Flexibility is is yeah. preparing, and and uh, the again the the one slide I had in there, the one one of the two cartoons I did find the one size fits all, one size doesn't fit all. So that that sounds yeah. terrific. That's Any great. other? Well, where are we? We are at time, so I want to thank you so much, Dr. Palmer, for taking the time to speak to us tonight. It was such a fantastic talk. I want to thank all of you for joining us tonight. A reminder that this uh, video will be on our website and on UCTV. 
and that you can find out more about our upcoming events at aging.ucsd.edu. And with that, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Palmer. It was so nice to be with all of you tonight, and we'll see you in September. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.